Hi everybody. Good morning. My name is Charlie. I'm the pastor here. We've been in a study in the Gospel of John. We spent five weeks, maybe six, in the prologue, the first 18 verses. And today we move on into the narrative. So if, if you've been with us, this might be the Sunday you've been waiting for. Moving forward in the narrative. Um, but before we talk any more about it, let's read it together. Well, I want to invite you, if you would, stand and we'll read God's Word together. Gospel of John 1 19 through 34. Now this, was the, now this was John's testimony, that's John the Baptist, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen... And I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated.
Well, if you are so lucky as to subscribe to our church's weekly email and read it, uh, then you've already read, or you might already be familiar with this story I'm about to tell you, but for the sake of everyone else, I want to tell it to you again. Um, about 20 years ago, I was in college in the Mid-South, and I was working as a part-time employed musician, guitar player at a large church. If you don't know, sometimes large churches in the South employ musicians as staff, and I was working as one of those. And I'll save you the details of how the conversation came to take place, but I was sitting in a dark, empty sanctuary with the church's worship pastor. And I was very frustrated. And in a moment of what was either pure-hearted boldness or block-headed naivety, one or the other, I looked the worship pastor in the face and I told him that I was deeply concerned that when he was up front leading worship, he wasn't thinking about God, he wasn't thinking about Jesus, he wasn't even thinking about the lyrics to the songs we were singing. He was thinking about being cool. He was concerned with his image. His response in that moment shocked me. And it, to be honest, it shocks me still when I think about it. Absolutely I'm thinking about being cool, Charlie. I said, what? He said, if I'm up there looking cool, leading worship, then the people will see how cool I am and they'll want to be cool like me. Therefore, they will want to worship too. Not long after that, I was fired from my role <laughs> as a part-time employed musician, no longer a good fit for the culture of the church. Last week I spoke about how there's no such thing as Christianity that's separated from Christian mission. Remember that, those of you who are here? There's no such thing as a Jesus follower who's not a Jesus representative. There's not an agent for Christ in their world, whatever that means. Whether their world is like, like I am standing in front of a church, or whether their world is as small as their household at home. Every single Christ follower also represents Jesus to the people around you. That's what we talked about last week. Our lives, our words, if we cling to him, then our lives and our words proclaim him. Now, I share the story about the worship pastor with you not because I want to shame him. I did want to shame him for many years, but I'm over that. I've learned that he was just doing what he was trained to do. Um, I'll share it with you because I want to point out that when it comes to the way, the way we actually go about the business of representing Jesus in whatever sphere you have, whatever circle of influence you have, whatever your vocation is, the way that we go about the business of 
witness, representing Jesus. is just as important as the business of witness itself. The way we get there, the journey is just as important as the destination. And I've also become convinced, and this is one of the big things I want to share with you today, I've also become convinced that you and I, us, Hope Presbyterian Church, um, in fact, Christians everywhere, um, we're not that different than the worship pastor in the way that we think, in the way that we go about representing Jesus to others. Our Actions, our words, when we go out to share Christ with others, to demonstrate Christ to others, are so often driven, steered, edited, put together by self-centered, self-conscious states of mind and heart. His ministry philosophy, which is to look cool so others would see how cool he is and want to be like him and therefore worship God. I think somewhere we might change out the word cool for something else. But I think somewhere his ministry philosophy has become our ministry philosophy. Our church, within American Christianity, us. Um, let me put it this way. Let me give you some examples. Uh, maybe I can convince you that this is true. How about this? Have you ever heard this? Have you ever thought this? To be a good witness, to be a good witness for Jesus in your workplace, in your home, at your school, among your friends, to be a good witness, you need to make sure you present the best version of yourself to others. Clean up. Make sure you act right. Make sure you set the good example. And then, people will see how wonderful you are, how together you are, how nice your life is. And they'll ask you, Tell me your secret. And then at that point, then you can share Jesus with others. And you can talk with them about how you yourself are a sinner. But be careful. Because if you let them see you sinning, you will lose your witness. Have you ever heard something like that? I don't think that's so different than if I look good. People will see, you know, want to be like me, and no. See the similarity there? How about this one? When you come to church, uh, clean yourself up. You want to bring your best to God, and you want to present your best to the other people at church. Do your best to fit in with the culture 
of the church. That way you don't get in the way of the church's ministry. That way you can make sure you make friends and connections. Maybe you can participate in the ministry of the church. So if you fit in, then maybe you can serve on a committee or something like that. But bring your best. And make sure you do what it takes to conform to the church's culture. That way you can do the ministry that God has for you to do, and you can worship there like God wants you to do. I don't think that that's so different. At least the mindset, the point of reference in the brain, is still me. It shouldn't be lost on us that John, the Gospel writer, begins his narrative with the story of how John the Baptist, and henceforth, just so we know, they're both named John, to get that out of the way, we just refer to them as John the Gospel writer, John the Baptist. It shouldn't be lost on us that John the Gospel writer begins his narrative about Jesus with the story of how John the Baptist refused to play the cult of personality game with the religious establishment. He refused to play the conforming and fitting into the culture of the mainstream religious system game. He refused to play the talking about himself to gain a platform game. That's what this story is about. There's four things in this story that we read about John the Baptist baptizing at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan when representatives from the Jerusalem religious system came and asked him, who are you? There's four things about this story that, that we need to notice that John the Gospel writer wants us to see. Here's the first one. We should take note that John the Baptist's work attracted uh, attention on its own. We need to see that. John the Baptist's work of ministry attracted attention on its own accord, on its own merit. The work itself was enough. Verse 19 tells us that the, the Judean uh, religious establishment had sent delegates. Priests, Levites, and then we see later Pharisees were also involved. Those are three different groups. And they sent representatives from their three different groups to come out to Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, interact with John the Baptist, and say, who are you? Figure out who he is and what he is about. So they, they come out and they ask him, who are you? Now, think about that. Um, the High Council of the Mother Church sends delegates from three different ecclesiastical parties to go out and see what's going on. That tells us that whatever was happening out there was causing some kind of ruckus. But, it was drawing attention. 
We can read in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three, we can read about how John the Baptist was wildly popular in Judea. We read about how he was eccentric in his personality. He dressed from clothes he made himself from camel hair. He ate wild honey and locusts. He lived out in the desert. He, uh, he was kind of a hard-line preacher, repent and believe. He even spoke against King Herod. Uh, he was a strong personality with a notable brand. People remember John. Something was going on out there. People came from all over the countryside to see him. We read that in Josephus, the historian, as well. John the Baptist was... Think, think, about, think about celebrity culture today. Who is somebody that everybody seems to know? Well, that was John the Baptist in this time. So these delegates go out and they ask him who he is. And all of this popularity, all of this celebrity thing going on, all of it, none of that was the source. I'm sorry, all of his eccentricity, all of his quirkiness, all of his preaching, all of that stuff, none of it was the source of his popularity. That's not why people went to see him. John, the Gospel writer, tells us what the source of John the Baptist's popularity was. It wasn't his persona, it wasn't his uh, eccentricity, it wasn't his preaching style. John the Gospel writer tells us that it was his baptizing. That's the thing that got the attention of the religious establishment. That's the reason people came from all over to go see him, because of his baptizing. Now, let's talk for a moment about what John's baptism was. John's baptism was not the same as Christian baptism, what we do here on, when we get to do that. It was Hebrew baptism. It was Jewish baptism, which is very, very, very similar, but slightly different. Uh, Hebrew baptism, Jewish baptism, at this time, was a, uh, a, uh, like a ceremonial rite of ritual washing. Okay, so that's very much like what we do. Ritual washing with water. But it was mostly performed when a Gentile converted into Judaism, when a Gentile became a Jew. So that's very similar to what we do. When somebody becomes a Christian, we baptize them. Um, it signaled repentance of sins. This Gentile has repented of his or her sins. It signaled incorporation into God's people. Now they're no longer a Gentile, they're becoming Jewish. It was a big deal. But here, John the Baptist is out there at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, and he's baptizing who? Gentiles? He's baptizing Jewish people. Whoa. What's that about? Let's go check it out. That's kind of weird. Here's the other thing. John the Baptist is baptizing at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Now, it's easy to get confused. In John's Gospel, we hear about two different cities named Bethany. One was Bethany, where uh, Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha lived. That was kind of near Jerusalem. This is a different Bethany. This is Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. This was actually the place where when the people uh, 
After 40 years in the wilderness with Moses, this is the place where they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land with Joshua about to take the land. So, John the Baptist is standing in the river at the place where the people crossed over to get into the land. And he is saying, repent of your sins, be baptized here. Now, it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but I think there's good reason uh, inferring from what we have here that the people came in on one side, were baptized, and then went out on the other side into Canaan. And it was what John called a baptism of repentance. Here's why that's a big deal. Remember the Old Testament story of the exile? When the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom, the people of God were exiled, and there were the diaspora of Jews were all over the world at that point. Remember why that happened? It's because the people were worshiping idols, clinging to their idols, and they refused to repent of their sins. And God said, look, if you want to worship the gods of the nations, you don't want to repent, just go do that. And when you're ready to repent of your sins, I'll bring you back into the land. Well, Babylonians gave way to the Persians, and the Persians gave way to the Greeks, and the Greeks gave way to the Romans. And here in this time, in the first century, in the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, Judea and Galilee were under Roman rule. The exile is continuing. So pious people, like the Pharisees, they thought, well, once we're ready to repent, then we'll receive the land back, and God will forgive our national sins. Enter John the Baptist, standing at the place where the people of Israel enter the land, and he says, repent, come through the river, and receive forgiveness of your sins. John's baptizing was declaring not just personal forgiveness, but corporate forgiveness. He was declaring end of exile. Here's the point. John's work was rich. It spoke for itself. It was enough to attract attention. And the Gospel writer wants us to see that. Here's the second thing the Gospel writer wants us to see. When he was given the opportunity to self-promote, John the Baptist says, no. We see this, verses 19 through 21. These delegates from Jerusalem come. They ask him three questions. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And to each of these, John the Baptist says no. What's interesting is each answer he gives gets a little bit shorter, almost like he's getting frustrated. Toward the last one, he just gives one word, no. Now, those questions are significant. They say, are you the Messiah? Messiah, that would have been like the new David, the liberator of God's people, the one who would bring an end to exile. Of course they asked him that. He's standing in the river with sort of like a play act demonstration declaring end of exile. So, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. He says, okay. How about Elijah? That's a reasonable question because the, the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi. In the last chapter, it says that before the Messiah comes, Elijah the prophet is going to return and, and, 
and he's going to be here before the Messiah gets here. It's almost like they're saying, well, if you're not the number one guy, are you the number two guy? It's also significant because Elijah was known for living out in the desert, wearing funny clothes, and demonstrating God's power. The very things that John the Baptist was doing. And he answers. He says, no. You might as well have said, my name is John, not Elijah. I said, okay, well, what about the prophet? Are you the prophet? The, the big prophet of Judaism is Moses. First century, Moses was the guy. Well, in Deuteronomy 18, in Moses' farewell speech before the people entered the land, he said that after he died, after so many years, a new prophet would rise up who's greater than even he is. So they're asking, well, was that you? He says, no. He's deflecting. Notice that John the Baptist could have said these things. He could have said, well, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. But actually, I am the long-prophesied forerunner to the Messiah, as spoken of by the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. So pay attention to me. That would have been true, but he doesn't do it. He could have said, are you Elijah? He could have, he could have answered truthfully. He could have said, no, I'm not Elijah. My name is John. However, an angel appeared to my dad before I was miraculously conceived and told my dad that his son, which is me, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That would have been true. But he doesn't say that. He could have said, are you a prophet? He could have said, no, I'm not the prophet. But I am a prophet, and if you haven't noticed, we haven't had one in 400 years. So why don't you get in the congregation and listen to me? That would have been appropriate, but he doesn't say that. Well, maybe not appropriate. It would have been true, but he doesn't say that. John's work spoke for itself when he was given the opportunity to self-promote, to put a brand on it, to label it with his persona. He says, no way. Here's the third thing. We need to note that John's sense of mission did not come from his sense of self. It rested in his sense of who Jesus is. We see in verse 23, John says, you know, he matches these, I am not, you know, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not Moses. He, he matches these three denials with three affirmations. He says, I'm a voice. He says, in so many words, I'm a baptizer. And he says at the end, he says, I am unworthy. Those are the things he says about himself. Pay, pay attention to these. He says, I am a voice. I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah. That's significant. But maybe even more significant, as John the Gospel writer frames it in this narrative. We just read for six weeks, five weeks, whatever, this whole prologue about the Son of God who became human, took the name Jesus Christ. The Son of God is the Word. Jesus is the Word. John says, I'm the voice. He's the, he's the thing. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the carrier. See it? His sense of identity is derivative from Jesus. He says, I'm the baptizer. This is interesting. He says, 
the Pharisees say, who gives you the right to baptize? He says, look, I baptize with water, but there's one who comes after me who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, my work is derivative. It's preparatory. It's lesser. The real work comes from him. He says, I am unworthy. There's one coming, there's one here standing among us, which means that Jesus is probably there in the crowd, but John doesn't point him out. Whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. That's significant. And second, and, and during this time, in Jewish culture during this time, the act of untying somebody's sandals, taking somebody's shoes off, was considered incredibly degrading for the person doing doing the shoe taking off. Um, aristocrats and people who owned slaves would reserve that task for their lowest ranking slave. In fact, if, they, if a Hebrew person had Hebrew slaves, the Hebrew slaves were exempt from that job. It was for Gentile slaves. John the Baptist here says, the person that I am keep pointing to, I myself am not even worthy to be his lowest slave. What John is speaking of here is he's making a reference to grace. Even though I am not worthy to be his lowest slave, he has made me his baptizer, his agent, and he has made me his voice. You see that? So John's work attracted enough tension on, on its own. John refused uh, to self-promote when given the opportunity. And John's whole sense of identity and mission all derived from Jesus, not himself. And here's the last thing we need to see. All of the attention that was directed toward him while he was doing his thing, bearing witness to Christ, he deflected it and redirected it, like, like a mirror deflects and redirects light, back to Jesus. It kept, it's like he's saying, don't look at me, look at him. That last paragraph, he basically summarizes his whole life purpose. He gives his manifesto. This could go on his tombstone. He says, I have seen... And I, have, and I testify that this, talking about Jesus, is God's chosen one. John, who are you? That guy over there is God's chosen one. Now, that's what's going on in this text. Let's, let's bring this back to our problem. The fact that we have this tendency to do church, to do Christian witness, to try to do things for God, with self-centered, self-referential, self-benefiting, self-concerned state of mind and heart. Let's take it back. We learned that last week that John the Gospel writer here is presenting John the Baptist as kind of a model Christian, like, like a prototype of what a Christian disciple is supposed to be like. It's like John the Gospel writer is saying, okay, before I tell you the story about Jesus, look at this guy, because the story about Jesus is supposed to make you like this character, John the Baptist. 
So when we look at John the Baptist, we as Christians should go, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what the Gospel writer is doing. And if these things that he puts in the text, these four things, if he wants us to see them, which I think he does because they're so clear, then it becomes kind of an indictment against us and the way that we do our Christianity culturally. And the way that we tend to do church and the way that we tend to do witness. The way that we tend to, I better clean myself up and do it really good or else I'm going to lose my witness. Or if I do clean myself up and do really good, I'm going to gain the witness. That whole thing. It shows us that representing Jesus according to our gifts, our calling, every person in their time and place according to their abilities and their sphere, if we do that, and when we do that, the attention that it draws, whether it's me drawing your attention or whether it's a little kid just, who just has the attention of her mom, then that act of representing Jesus garners enough attention on its own. We don't need to package it. We don't need to dress it up. We don't need to make it cool. We don't need to sell it. We should read this text and we should see that when we're tempted to do ministry in a way that's self-promoting, self-referential, pushing our brand, our persona, we should say, no. When we read this, we should see that the mission of God does not advance in the world because we are worthy or good people who have the right sense of self or the right sense of cultural values or the right perspective on things. No. It advances in spite of the fact that we are unworthy people. It advances by grace. And when we read this, we should see that any attention, any applause, any good that comes from us doing this, should be directed to Christ. There's no room for us patting ourselves on the back and saying, good job, guys. It's all Him. So, if we think, how about this? If we think that people come to faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and opens their minds and hearts and they reach out and they trust Jesus, if we think that they do that, or if we think that God calls Christians together into congregations because pastors preach good sermons, or because churches have certain systems of polity, or because the music is done a certain way, or because the membership holds some kind of correct view on culture or politics or economics or race or science, and this passage confronts us with a different kind of gospel. If we think that a self-promoting, puffed-up, self-congratulating attitude is part of Christian leadership, a mark of a strong leader, then this passage should be confronting us with a different kind of gospel. 
If we think that God will bless this church with growth, if we are really, really good, or if we pay really close attention to make sure our piety falls perfectly within 17th century Reformed Orthodoxy and our liturgy does not diverge from Calvin's Strasbourg liturgy. I think if we do that, surely God's going to bless us because we are faithful. Oh, then we're being confronted this passage. And if we keep focusing on secondary, tertiary matters, as if getting them right was the thing that's going to save us, we're being confronted with a different kind of gospel. John is calling us to embrace an approach to the Christian life, to church, in which we are invited to be our honest, unguarded, unfiltered, unedited, undressed up selves before the world and before each other. Because the salvation of the world doesn't depend on us. It depends on Jesus. And John is calling us to embrace an to embrace an approach to Christian mission in church, which doesn't depend on our outward religion, our credentials, our culture, our politics, families of origin, the worldly quality of our talents, gifts, and abilities. It depends on Jesus and includes a shared sense of awe over the fact that we are not even worthy to be slaves. That statement is baffling. In case you don't know, slavery is wrong. Right? So to say we're not even worthy to be slaves, it's hyperbolic, it's poetic. It's a way of saying we have absolutely no right or business taking a seat in Jesus' household. Isn't it crazy that he has come into our household and he has said to us, you are my brother, you are my sister, and you will be my voice. So let me wrap this up this way. Hope Presbyterian, friends, people I know and love, and visitors. What if, let's just go down a little thought experiment. What if we stopped coming here with our best faces on? What if we came here and we were just ourselves? What if instead of raising eyebrows, turning away from people who don't seem to fit the culture of this church? Well, we say we welcome them. Of course, anybody can come. But really, welcoming them means we tolerate them. What if we stopped all of that? 
And we considered every single person that walked through that door, not just worthy of being here and being welcomed, but actually somebody that we should listen to and learn from. I had a, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know who she was, but it was a lady, a grown-up, maybe a Sunday school teacher. I remember a lady telling me one time that God does not love us for who we are. God loves us for who we are going to be when he's through working with us. You ever heard that? He doesn't love us for who we are. He loves us for who we're going to be when we're fully sanctified. I believed that for a while. Let me tell you something. That is not true. In fact, that's a pagan idea. That's not a Christian idea. Here's the Christian idea. Here's the gospel idea. God, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God loves you right now for who you are and as you are. Period. Do you know why? Not because you earned his love, but because Jesus earned his love on your behalf. So if that's the case, if God doesn't love us for who he desires to turn us into, but because of Christ, so he just loves us no matter what, then why do we treat people in our church? Why do we say, why do we welcome them on the, on the basis, on the premise that we assume that they're eventually they're going to learn the particular culture of our church, they're going to adapt to our particular secondary and tertiary values, they're going to become good PCA people, um, they're going to become one of us, and then, and then at that point, once they get there, they'll get there. Once they get there, then they, they, they will be fully embraced. Then they can serve on committees. Then, then when they speak up in a group, we'll actually, we won't just be quiet until they're done talking. We'll actually listen because maybe we can learn from them. If God loves us where we are, period, then, then why do we only welcome people based on what we think that they might turn into one day? Let's just say, hypothetically, that I have this friend. Let's say I have a friend here in Portland. She's a good friend of mine. And um, she grew up uh, in California in the charismatic movement. She never went to church that didn't have a big screen and an electrified uh, kind of poppy praise band. Um, she's really confused by the fact that some churches don't insist on women working alongside men in every place of leadership. She, she thinks, she doesn't get it. Why would a church do that? And she is baffled and offended by the fact that she heard that some churches out there don't even allow women to be pastors. And I heard that some churches, I can barely say it, don't allow women to lead anything. She thinks it's ludicrous. And she can defend her views about that with the Bible. She uses curse words. 
a regular part of her vocabulary. How she grew up, to her parents' talk, to tell all her friends' talk, everyone around her, she knows. Just like we watch in movies or on TV, speaks using curse words, even in front of her kids. She loves Oprah. She buys all of Oprah's books and thinks Oprah is just gives the just usable wisdom, and she loves it, and she hopes she hopes to try to live by that wisdom. She goes out of her way to make friends with LGBTQ folks. She invites those folks into her home. She wants her kids to be around them. Because she thinks that her kids have something to learn from that community, from people who are different than her family. She drinks beer, sometimes too much. She adores Joe Biden. She thinks that the contemporary pro-life movement is misguided. She thinks that recent uh, legal bans on abortion create an incredibly dangerous world for women. She speaks loudly. She never backs down from an argument. She doesn't trust the PCA. And she loves Jesus. She adores him with all of her heart. Her love for Jesus is contagious. She's always talking about him. The joy of the Lord is all around her. Now, if she came to our church, would she be welcomed? Yeah, of course, everybody's welcome. No, no, no. I don't mean we let her walk in the door. I mean really welcomed, embraced. Like, she belongs here and she's one of us even if she doesn't change her views. Would she be respected? Listened to? Would she be invited to serve on committees? Would she be given a voice? Would she be expected to conform to the culture of hope? before she's given that place. That's just hypothetical. Say I have this friend, right? Here's another hypothetical. What if she's already here? What if she, or the hypothetical he, is already in this congregation? What if they're sitting on your row? What if sometimes they come stand up here and do things in front of you on Sundays? Do you still want to be a part of this? What if we believed that the success of our church didn't depend on our differences in those areas, but depended on our shared love and adoration for Jesus? Because after all, we're not even worthy to untie his shoes. But he has made us his voice. So, people of God, brothers and sisters, hope friends, I want to say that whoever you are, whether you're male or female, adult, child, able, disabled, neurotypical, neurodivergent, white, Asian, Asian, Latin, black, conservative, liberal, gay, straight, trans, cisgender, Democrat, Republican, you just, we can go on, left-handed, right-handed, dog person, cat person, Whoever you are, you're welcome here. And every single person 
that with their heart looks to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God. The best I know, that's Him. But you're not just welcome here. You speak here. Because we need to hear the voice of Jesus in our church. And you might be camel-haired, honey-bearded, eating grasshoppers out in the wilderness, unworthy to be Jesus' slave. But if he is the one that you point to, then your voice carries his word. And we need the word of God in this church. Which means we need you. Come, Lord Jesus.